welcome to the Directors UK podcast. In this episode, we welcome BAFTA and Oscar-nominated director Betsy West, who spoke to us about her documentary, My Name is Pauli Murray, which she co-directed with Julie Cohen. In this conversation, Betsy is joined by Directors UK member Biban Kidron. Betsy and Biban discuss how researching Pauli's life helped shape the filmmaking process the decision to use Paulie's voice as the main narrator, and how colour coding makes for a successful co-directing partnership. The Directors UK podcast celebrates the craft of directing. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please rate, review and subscribe. And don't forget to share with your friends. Now back to Betsy and B-Ben. Please enjoy. Welcome everyone and I'm uh, Biban Kidron and I wear glasses and I'm a middle-aged woman wearing a, 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 a maroon shirt with a pink collar and I am absolutely delighted to be joined uh, by Betsy West who most of us will know from uh, the fantastic RBG documentary, which was, of course, Academy uh, nominated, and uh, but has a very long history uh, in film and television. And I'm going to start by actually asking Bess, Betsy to say a little bit about your previous career, how, how you got to be with us tonight. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And thank you guys for playing this train as the lead in because, yeah, you know, I just love that song. And it was one of the last decisions we made on the film. It's we run it over the credits, Sister Rosetta Tharp. And um, it relates to Polly Murray, I think, and her journey on the train. And, and it just makes me smile. It was my husband, who is also a filmmaker, suggestion uh, that song. And uh, so and and he relates to how I got here, which is basically I was a network news uh, television producer uh, for ABC News for a number of years based in New York and then in London for three years when I worked for uh, Nightline, which is a show sort of like Newsnight and based in London, but traveling a lot, doing longer takeout pieces, you know, eight minutes, maybe 15 minutes, occasionally longer, but always dreaming of doing documentaries uh, because I just had watched the World at War series, which will date me. So I guess, uh, and also, um, you know, other other uh, kind of seminal documentaries, certainly when Hoop Dreams came out, that was a big inspiration to me to, to see how you could marry narrative storytelling, you know, with factual uh, filming. I just, I love that. Anyway, I had worked in network television. I then became an executive and I was overseeing uh, the news program 60 Minutes in the in the States. And then I left CBS in uh, 2005, sort of in the middle of a big political brouhaha, the kind of thing that often happens to executives in uh, news situations. And I went to teach at Columbia Journalism School, uh, which was just a fantastic reset for me. And to be in touch with younger people and to have a community of journalists was really fantastic. And that's when I started working with my husband a little bit on some of the documentaries he was doing. And, and then I did a project, which was both a video series and a documentary about the modern women's movement called Makers, Women Who Make America. And I think that was the eye-opening turning point moment for me as someone who grew up during the women's movement and, you know, of course, knew the broad outlines and felt that I am a feminist and very grateful for the work of the feminists. I don't think I knew the complete, I, I know that I didn't know uh, a lot of these stories, which we captured in this uh, project as I was learning about it. One of the people we interviewed at that time in 2010 was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, in addition to being the second uh, woman on the U.S. Supreme Court, had been the litigator uh, in the 1970s who uh, changed the world for American women. I didn't know that until I did that story, which is embarrassing. 
And then uh, having done that, I, during that project, I met Julie Cohen, who has a, who's a little younger. She's about 10 years, maybe 13 years younger than me, but has a, a similar background in, in network television news, but also aspirations to make documentaries. She was out on her own doing it. And um, in 2015, we decided that uh, RBG, who had become a, the notorious RBG on the internet for all of the very uh, striking dissents she was writing uh, on the Supreme Court, uh, we thought, well, you know, people don't know the backstory. They don't know what she did as a women's rights litigator, and they don't know the love story. And we really need to make a film about her. So that's how that happened. And that kind of is uh, is almost a direct line to, to Polly Murray, because yeah. uh, it was RBG who gave credit to Polly Murray for coming up with the legal strategy for winning equal rights for women in the 1960s when other people weren't considering our 14th Amendment and how it might hold the solution uh, to women's equality. And so after RBG, we were looking around for, well, what's our next project? And, and thought, well, gee, how about Polly Murray? Well, wow. well, that's a fantastic story, and uh, you know that that's that's a fantastic sweep. And I think I might actually just go back because it's quite unusual for two people to co-direct. And you've now done two films together. Um, four. Oh, four. Four, four films, yeah. And I think that'd be interesting for our audience, which is all directors, to just talk a little bit about that relationship, how it works, whether you have particular responsibilities uh, and and or whether you work absolutely sort of in tandem? Um, I would say it's more in tandem than it is the other. But I think because Julie and I have very similar sensibilities, um, we wind up able to divide and conquer often because we really trust each other. So for example, on characters, often, you know, we'll, we will split up who is talking to, booking, uh, you know, pre-interviewing and interviewing a particular character, but both of us will be involved in coming up with the questions. And if possible, we both try to go to the interview and, and listen, you know, the other one listens. The main person does the interview, the other one's listening and backing up. So that's just one example. I mean, we have a whole system of how we do uh, scripting, uh, which involves color coding our, uh, you know, either our our Jamboard uh, outline of the script or color coding our the script itself to make suggestions. And um, when we both agree, so we'll be looking on the script, and my suggestion will be in green, and if. Julie agrees, then she just makes it yellow. And then the editor knows, okay, do that. And hers is in purple. And similarly, you know, sometimes we go back and forth, but we, we're just kind of on a wavelength. And um, I find it's extraordinary to have a partner that way, somebody, another brain to think things through. So it, it's worked. Fantastic. I, I do want to just go back to you say you you know you grew up in the world of television and and not you know some of it was fast paced some of it was longer form but it wasn't the having to tell a whole story and it wasn't having to to sort of you know both it's a funny thing isn't it the story of a life you've both got to you stretch it out in terms beyond 60 minutes let's say yeah You've also got to cram it all in. It's not an event, it's a whole life. And and I wonder, you know, in the in the case of uh this story, how, how do you even start to say, what point do you start to say these are the elements of the life that are interesting, or this is the approach we're taking, or yeah. are you some other journey of just turning up everything before you even get to that moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because you don't want to film that like then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. You know, I mean, that's kind of boring after a while. And you do have to, I think, have an approach to telling someone's story. I mean, one of the first things we talked about was just 
how ahead of the time Polly Murray was. You know, Polly Murray arrested for sitting in the back of the bus in 1940, which is a good, you know, 15 years before Rosa Parks was arrested. And Polly Murray coming up with one of the foundational ideas for our truly important Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court decision in the 1950s, Polly came up with the one of the reasoning, one of the, the legal strategies for that uh, in the early 40s when a law student at Howard Law School and was laughed for it. And 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 also, you know, again, we I mentioned how Polly Murray uh, came up with the legal strategy for the women's movement. So as and also Polly Murray was the first uh, uh, female African-American Episcopal priest in our country uh, later in life. So we thought that one of the things to do would be to highlight these firsts. And um, we thought getting an artist to help us do that would would help us structure this film in some ways and kind of give a little uh, beat to this moment. So you see it in the beginning of the film when we start telling the story, and we don't start with Polly Murray being born and you know moving to Durham or whatever. We start with Polly Murray's niece going to the archive, looking at the archive and saying, wow, Aunt Pauline, Polly told me a lot, but I didn't know everything, you know, looking, and this was something that, that Karen just said as going through the files, naturally, she said this, wow, the bus, 1940 bus incident. And that launched us into that story. But you'll notice at the top, we, we have some archive of an old bus going through the South and then we freeze it. And we had a wonderful artist, Diana Ijeda, who, you know, we spent some time finding. Uh, she is a Italian uh, uh, African artist who does a lot of covers of the New Yorker magazine, if anybody notices. And she took, we sent her the fr freeze frame of that bus and she turned it into a very beautiful piece of art. And then we were able to put the Chiron that said 1940, 15, I think, can't remember exactly what it says, but 15 years before Rosa Parks refused to go to the back of the bus. So that was a that was one organizing principle to yeah. highlight those areas that were key and important. And we came up with this kind of artistic device to help us do that. But there were many other decisions, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, to be honest, I thought that was very successful. And I think you you talked a little earlier about RBG, you know, kind of to my shame, I did not know who she was. Well, to my shame, I did not know who Paulie Murray was yeah. before I watched your film. And I'm sure lots of people have that experience. And I think that that anchoring it, not just in cre created her importance, she was before, but actually it helped I hope people like me who didn't know about her anchor her with other great events that we do exactly. know. Exactly. So like, why should you care about this person? Why is this person important? And we wanted to telegraph that for people. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was fantastically successful. I, I think that you've just mentioned uh, the archive. And I think that that has to be a, a, a question, which is you had so much archive. I mean, that was a phenomenal shot when she's sort of going up and down and you realize it's not looking for the box that <laughs> all her boxes. Yeah. And yeah. that's actually quite, um, I may be weird, but I thought it was quite a moving moment. You know, the idea that a life that was, you know, that obviously was important enough for you to make a film about was in all these boxes. And I felt it was quite a visceral thing uh, to, to start there. But, but, but my question is really, how do you go about animating a series of files? I mean, you know, she had been dead for 30 odd years before yeah, you, yeah. You, you started this project. Did that scare you? Did you have some ideas that didn't work out? Did you do you feel you've been wholly successful? I mean, that that seems to be a big fundamental issue of the film. I mean, how can you make a film about a person who's been dead for 30 years and um, who wasn't that famous? I mean, maybe well known in some circles, but not like, you know, David Frost was interviewing Polly Murray. It wasn't happening. So, yeah, well, we knew there was an archive 
at Harvard at the Schlesinger Library. And, you know, the extent of the archive, it's 140 boxes, which is pretty incredible and really a testament to Polly's own sense of self. Polly really understood, even if current day people weren't recognizing what Polly had done, that maybe history would. So we found that extremely moving, that Polly, a person who had periods of real struggle and impoverishment, was lugging around all these boxes. Um, so that was encouraging. We knew that. And we also discovered soon in the process that there were photographs. Polly took a lot of photographs. So, you know, who goes riding the rails in 1933 and has a camera in hand? Hey, would you take a picture of me climbing up on this boxcar? I mean, that is Polly Murray, which is amazing. And I think does speak to Polly's understanding of, of what was going on here and how important it was. The other thing that's amazing and we have to thank Polly Murray for is in the 1970s, when Polly became an Episcopal priest, and also when people were beginning to study the women's movement and talk about the women's movement, there were a number of interviews that Polly did, audio interviews, mainly audio interviews. And Polly always made a point of pushing the record button um, mm -hmm. and on her own, on, on Polly's own tape recorder. And then, so there were dozens of audio tapes of interviews of Polly. And then Julie serendipitously, because she couldn't find the link to the Polly Murray collection, put the name Polly Murray in and found another video that had never been digitized. That's the opening shot, those shots of Polly reprimanding the dog and smiling, that beautiful smile had never been digitized. It was an interview done by a young woman who just dropped it off at the Schlesinger Library and it hadn't been filed with a collection. So that was a real moment where we thought, oh my goodness, we're going to be able to bring this person to life. I'm, I'm going to come back to the, the to, to the archive and the sound and so on, but just I just want to pick up on something you said. You said she had a sense of self. Actually, What's really interesting about her story is that she seemed to have, you know, she seemed to be creating space for many selves, not only hers, but other people's. And, and, and yet she's recording herself, yet she's photographing herself, yet she's very conscious yeah. of her own being. And But later on, you know, when she has quite uh, some periods of depression and, and anxiety and, and, uh, and, and sort of verbalizes her upset about about how she manifests in the world. So it's interesting this sort of this contradiction between yeah. you know sort of formalizing her presence yeah. Yeah. On, from a very young age to to actually struggling with her presence in another sense. So I just wonder whether you could talk about that because it was just interesting you used that phrase. Yeah. Well, in some ways, Polly was a very confident person someone who worked very hard to become a good writer, to be you know, talking about in, in Hunter College, feeling inferior because the other students were better educated, but working so hard to graduate with honors. I mean, this was a person who put in the work. And, and then as a young woman, uh, in the, you know, it probably in late 20s is writing these very bold letters to the president of the United States, getting the attention of the president's wife. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes a lot of confidence. And then, you know, maintaining a relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt, which allowed for ongoing disagreement, mm -hmm. criticizing the president and yet being close to Eleanor. So here's a person with a real, a sense of self, which I think was nurtured uh, as a child in Durham, North Carolina, which was, you know, a, a, in some ways a tough place to grow up, but in some ways a good place because Polly had a very strong family and, you know, a determined aunt who believed in Polly. And I think that's at the core of, of that confidence. The, the struggles were with 
Polly's gender identity. I mean, this is a person who was most likely non-binary, living this life in in at a time when there was no language, you know, no nobody talked about trans people if if Polly was in fact trans or you know no community no support no understanding i mean you can imagine how depressing that must have been and i think that these are the 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 two uh conflicting forces and I, it was it made us feel good to realize that polly did find a happy relationship later in life with rini uh and then you see a little bit of that conflict. It's no longer in the archive. I mean, what we used of Polly's letters to doctors asking for perhaps surgery or just help uh, dealing with the fact that Polly felt like a man, that stopped uh, after, at least in the archive. Uh, we don't see that really after the 1950s and then the relationship with Rini, which was a closeted relationship. It's not, but but some people knew and uh, you know assumed that they were living, a, you know, a lesbian lifestyle, which of course in the 1950s was extremely dangerous professionally. I mean, you could be fired from your job, so of course they were closeted, <laughs> um, and it just wasn't something that was discussed. But I do think that that in that second part of life, we see a a somewhat happier and more fulfilled Polly Murray. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested in this thing about, and now I may, I may be wrong about this, but, but it is my impression um, that, that a lot of the film is in her voice. Yeah. You know? uh, and, and I just wondered whether that was a, a, a journey to get to that point. It was a creative decision. It was a piece of luck when you find that those interviews uh, maybe more of those things, but I'm just really interested how conscious that was for you. Totally or conscious. Right. Yeah. yeah, and I probably should have said that as maybe the first creative decision. I mean, in a way, I think it was. We wanted the story to be told as much as possible in Polly's voice. When we heard these videotapes, we thought, all right, maybe this will be possible. The quality of them varied greatly, and it is a testament to both our editor and to our sound engineer to make it, you know, to make it seem like a kind of seamless narrative as if Polly's telling us the story from, you know, in one take, but it's many, it's many different takes as everybody who makes films will know, you know, we're, we're doing that. And we also had an amazing find that our intern made. There was a photograph of Polly that the credit was to a uh, National Park Service archive. So we just called up the National Park Service. You have this photograph. Do you have anything else about Polly Murray? Oh yeah, we have a a statue of Polly Murray's hand or a, a sculpture of Polly Murray's hand. Well, okay, that's good. And because uh, Polly Murray had a very good friend who had donated her archive to this National Park Service. And they said, and we also have these audio tapes here that are labeled Polly. And it was like, oh, that's interesting. And it turned out that the friend was going blind. And when Polly was writing Polly's autobiography, uh, Polly wanted this friend to be able to hear it. And so she recorded not the entire autobiography because she got too sick at a certain point, but she recorded up through the 1950s of the autobiography. So that was an incredible find. We were able to take in, in Polly's voice and in addition to the interviews and things to help weave the story. That, that that is absolutely incredible, and I think it goes, you know, for for any director who's who's listening to this conversation. I think, you know, what we all know is we need a, a lot of sweat and a bit of luck, and that a is bit of luck. Yeah, no, it was it was so great. We were so happy. I, I, I would work for that intern, a paid intern, I might add, not a bit and and really worth it. You know, it's really funny because when you said intern and you told the story, I thought, I, should I make a crack about, I hope the intern got it yeah. right. But there you go. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I, I just 
just to really just double down on that point. So, so the decision to tell it in her voice had already been made. And then this came in to just make it richer. Yeah. yeah. It, it yeah. wasn't that you were going to, it wasn't that that was the moment. No, no, this, we'd already made that decision. And, you know, we had decided that if we didn't have Polly's voice, we did have the autobiography so we could use excerpts, you know, graphics of them. And you'll see in the, you know, you see in the film, certainly in the uh, discussion of gender identity, we don't have Polly talking about that on tape. That's all with, from, from letters, to Aunt Pauline, letters to doctors, diary, those entries are there. So we, you know, we had to mix it up, but I think it all feels as if it's coming from Polly. It does. Um, I, I'm just really interested. You've already mentioned, but you know, one of one of the sort of extraordinary things is the photograph of her on the train. And actually, you know, congratulations, because you kind of feel you're on the train with her and you've managed to make it move. And, and that's really quite lovely for us, the audience. But um, I'm just interested to know how much that was a, a necessity, how much that was choice and how much that was realizing at this point of her life that she didn't fit the mold and she needed to be away somewhere. And so anywhere away was away. But but I think that wasn't 100% clear to me what her motivation was, although it was an extraordinary scene. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the reality of what happened. And when we read the autobiography and also, you know, there's several biographies of Polly. It's not as if Julie and I discovered Polly Murray. There's some really great academics who you see in the film uh, who... Uh, uh, Patricia Bell Scott, Brittany Cooper, Rosalind Rosenberg, who, you know, women, all women, by the way, um, who have, you know, had, had really done research on Polly. But when you read about Polly's life, the 30s were extremely challenging for Polly and did propel her out on to the rails, like many other people in America, mostly young men were riding the rails and Polly was an adventurer, you know, yeah. always looking for the next thing. So it's an extraordinary fact that Polly did this and, and um, you know, was dressing like a man at the time saying this was for protection and it may well have been for protection, but also a precursor to what we later learn about um, the gender identity uh, struggle. So uh, it was kind of setting up that story. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it was just a time, you know, we had, by this time, we told the bus story, we'd done the background of Polly's growing up and, you know, the family, the strength of the family, the um, the threat of the KKK growing up and then, you know, getting, saying to Aunt Pauline, get me to New York City, <laughs> getting through New York. I mean, there are parts of the story we had to skip. I mean, Polly came up and tried to go to Columbia University and they said, well, forget it. We don't take women. And then tried to go across the street to Barnard, uh, which is Columbia's sister school. And they basically said, you can't afford this. Then went to Hunter. Hunter said, well, we might take you, but you have to pass the New York State Regents exam. And probably with your high school training, you can't do that, which was true. So then Polly had to live with a cousin and go to high school again for a year to then get, to, I mean, the determination of this young woman as a teenager, uh, and then to accomplish all of this, get out, and it's the depression. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it yeah. did feel like that was a moment of, okay, she, Polly's not going to let it get her down, jump on a train and have some adventure. Amazing. It's a, it is an amazing story. And I do think that the, you know, the many, the many, faces the many sort of ways that she faced you yeah. know professionally personally and so on is 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 a real it is what comes out and the determination to 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 be all of those things that she needed to be in the yeah. course of a lifetime I, I i have an interesting sort of or an interest in i should say 
in um, this sort of concept of public and private. So here is this woman with a huge public life, a huge archive recording her own life, and, and then this sort of private life, which also is quite recorded in terms of letters and so on. Um, and I just wondered whether you either, either intellectually, politically, visually, you know, in, in terms of the film, felt that you had to make discriminations between what was public and private, what was, what was yours to tell, what was hers to tell, whether, and, and how you then chose to tell it. Yeah. Um, you know, our, uh, and by the way, I just want a shout out to our editor, Sinque Northern, who I think did an amazing job with that train sequence and so many of them and bringing that to life. Um, uh, but in terms of the public-private, I think that there had been other uh, researchers who had come across the material, the very private material about Polly's uh, gender questions and relationships and had chosen not to reveal them, saying this, this is the private life, it, it doesn't really um, affect what Polly accomplished. But we really uh, took a lead and, and agreed with Rosalind Rosenberg, who was, I think, the first academic to write about this issue. And we quote Rosalind, and Rosalind is interviewed in the film talking about how Polly's in-betweenness mm. allowed Polly to think outside of the box and to make some of these very innovative discoveries that may not seem so innovative now. I mean, it's hard to believe, but in the early 1940s, lawyers for the NAACP, including Thurgood Marshall, had kind of accepted Plessy v. Ferguson in that, which is the ruling that says separate but equal. It's okay if we have different doors for uh, for black people and white people, but you know they should have equal facilities. And, you know, the NAACP was fighting very hard for equal facilities because they weren't equal. You know, they were separate, but not equal. And it was Pauly who was arguing, look, we got to get rid of Plessy v. Ferguson. This is, you know, innately impossible. Separate but equal can't exist because there's an inferiority just baked into the whole idea. So, Here's that's a that was a radical idea when Polly had it. And I think that, you know, going back to this issue of the private, Rosalind argued that it was Polly's understanding that these distinctions, gender distinctions, racial distinctions were meaningless. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed important to include these the discussions of Polly's uh, private life. I'll also say that our amazing producer, Talia Bridges McMahon, who spent a ton of time up at Harvard in the archive, um, noted that the collection was curated, that mm -hmm. there were things that were crossed out, uh, names that were blacked out. With, you know, Talia really got the sense that Polly left in there what Polly wanted us to see. Right. That's really interesting. And yeah. it's going to relate to a question that I have in the chat box in a minute. I, I'm going to ask you two more things. One, one is the, the sort of tricky question about representation. You know, um, the, the, there is a feeling that, that those that people should speak on their own behalf. And um, you and Julie, not women of color. And as far as I'm aware, not, not necessarily trans or, or, yeah. or non-binary yeah. or in-betweeners or what, however you want to. And yet these, these issues are absolutely at the forefront of current discussion. And I just wonder what discussions you had between the two of you on that issue and whether you've had to defend yourself on on that um, in in public and and also if you feel you know if you feel there was something that you had to go you had to work harder to look at yeah. you know yeah let me get to that part totally we did have to work harder but I will just say from the very beginning when we first came up with this idea Polly Murray 
you know, RBG told us about Polly Murray. Could we do a film? We sort of looked at each other and said, okay, we are two white women. How can we do this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is it right for us to do this? And the first thing we said was, um, well, look, because of the success of RBG, we had an opportunity to do it. In other words, we could get the funding to do it. Yeah. It wasn't as if there were a whole lot of people out there who were, you know, doing a film about Polly Murray. It, it wasn't, as far as we knew, it wasn't happening. And we had a feeling that we were going to be able to, to raise the necessary funds to be able to do Polly Murray justice. That was the first thing. And then Secondly, we realized, okay, we have to have an incredibly diverse team here. I mean, we're two white women and we don't just mean a lower level uh, diversity. We mean in all the key positions. Mm -hmm. So our producer and our um, editor and our composer and our artist and our, you know, I mean, we really surrounded ourselves um, with a very diverse crew, both African-American, Latina, I mean, that was important. Hmm. The, the hardest thing for us, I think, and the biggest learning curve for us was on the issue of Polly's gender identity yeah. and um, understanding its centrality and also representing it in a way that would not be, we hoped, offensive or yeah. to, to people in the LGBTQ community. So we, um, later on in the process, we reconsidered how to tell that story. And we did interview um, three uh, trans activists and and we found Talaya, um, found Dolores Chandler, yeah. uh, you know, who was extraordinary and someone who had been so touched by Polly Murray's story, really had a deep knowledge. I mean, Julie, one of the things that Julie and I agree on in terms of filmmaking, you know, we try not to have talking heads. We try to have people who are characters in their own right and have a really legitimate connection with the story that we're telling. And certainly all three people wasn't just like, oh, let's go find, you know, some <laughs> an, an LGBTQ no, person no. to interview about Polly Murray. No, it had to be somebody who was really connected. And and the three people we talked to, I think uh Chase Strangio and and Raquel Willis and and um Dolores Chandler helped us so much in understanding what Polly Murray means mm. to this community. Uh, not that I am a super and uh, pretend to be an expert in it, but tried as much as possible to um, learn from them and to include them. So you'll you'll notice, I mean, we kind of come into the present in the middle of the film there, you know, to talk about that. And then we go back again yeah. uh, because and it wasn't something we had planned to do originally. I, it didn't seem like, oh, that was going to be necessary. I thought, oh, we'll do that at the end. And people can talk at the end about what mm -hmm. Polly Murray means to them. But it really did seem pretty important. Uh, so that was a, a change. I, I, I think that's really interesting. And I, and I would say this is that that she is actually quite a, a lesson in intersectionality. And she is actually, you know, um, it, it, it was interesting because I think that many different communities owned her or shared her, perhaps, or she shared or she was part of. And, and I think that that's one of the very interesting parts of the film um, or, or outcomes of the film, yeah. uh, the, 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 that that sense did grow. Now, I'm actually going to turn to something uh, that someone said, and you have to forgive me, but it's so lovely I'm going to read it in its totality. Um, so it says, one of my favorite moments was seeing the archive, the volumes, volumes of her letters and the records poorly left behind. Extraordinary foresight and truly an inspired awareness of and in herself. Thank you for bringing Paulie's story to us, beautifully told, beautifully placed in the history of the time, both visually and in the narrative. I would love to know if you ever had a sense of Paulie's approval or direction during the shooting of the film. Wow. You know, we tried 
as much as possible to channel Polly. And, you know, reading Polly's poetry was something that was very moving to us and, and made us feel part of getting into Polly's head and feeling and maybe spirituality. Uh, I hadn't expected that we would be using a lot of Polly's poetry in the film. Frankly, I'm not a huge poetry reader uh, in my regular life, but reading Dark Testament and, you know, just the power of Polly's words uh, was very moving to all of us. And, and I think being in that archive also, you mentioned seeing all of those boxes. I mean, Normally, when you go to the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, you know, you give them a slip and then they go down to a vault somewhere and they come back with a folder and they let you look at it. But they did allow us to go down into the bowels of the building and film there. And, you know, not only is it all of Polly's records, but the Schlesinger Library is kind of the repository along with uh, the Smith Library of all of the most famous consequential women in America. So you're walking by and, you know, there's Betty Friedan and, you know, there's the Frances Perkins who was an amazing character during the, you know, or figure during the the depression and afterward and treasury secretary. I mean, you know, there's Susan B. Anthony. I mean, it's just extraordinary, <laughs> this archive. And then to see Polly's boxes there did feel as if it was, you know, it was just very moving that, yeah. that uh, Polly left them there for people like us and academics and others to find and to discover and to, to speak to us. Yeah, and, and interesting what you said earlier about some of it being redacted. So she, yeah. she set a limit. Yeah. She set a limit. Yeah, yeah. well, who knows what, you know, trying to avoid embarrassment to somebody or whatever. Um, yeah. So, so someone else here says, thank you for sharing your film. It was a great in-depth view of Paulie's life. Were there any parts of her story you didn't include that you wish you did? And anything that was cut for whatever reason, and what were they? Yeah, I mean, people always ask, often ask this question. Um, you know, in in Polly's case, yes, there were aspects of Polly's life that we just could not get into, uh, really for storytelling reasons. <laughs> At a certain point, it um, we we needed to kind of keep the narrative going. So, an example would be. Um, Polly, in the early 1950s, while a struggling lawyer in New York, was hired by the Methodist Church to write a compendium of racial laws in the United States. And uh, everybody has to remember that in the early 1950s, we didn't have Wikipedia. We didn't have the Internet. It, you know, it was a huge, huge research job. The Methodist Church was thinking of it as a pamphlet, but it wound up being a huge tome that took Polly about three years to complete. And um, the Thurgood Marshall called it his Bible, you know, reading all of the laws state by state that the NAACP was going to try to take on some of them. So that's a big accomplishment. We did actually cut something about that. But I don't know, it was, you know, it was coming after it was between that and doing the Detroit riots, the poem that Pauly wrote about the Detroit riots in 1943, criticizing FDR. That was such a powerful moment and also resonated with with um, George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, which was going on just as we were editing this and we're reading Pauly's words mm. about a riot in which you know, several dozen African-Americans were shot or beaten to club to death by both cops and um, young white gangs. I mean, it's just a horrifying story that who knew about it? We had, I had never really heard about it. And mm -hmm. so that that became the more important story to tell. And so we skipped the civil rights Bible and there, you know, there there are a few others. I mean, Polly's religious life. I don't think we, you know, 
delved into greatly. Um, you know, Polly was, we did try to indicate that Polly was always very religious from an early age. And obviously with Rini's death, that was a spiritual crisis. And, mm-hmm. and Polly found fulfillment in, in becoming a priest, but never had a, actually became a priest at such a late age that Polly didn't really have a, a congregation was kind of like a visiting pastor. And, and then shortly after that began writing the autobiography, got sick. And, you know, so again, there are things you can't tell everything. I mean, Polly's life was so eventful. So eventful. I I actually struggled with the, with the priest thing, not because I found it hugely interesting, but I did wonder with all the struggles and all what was going on around her, how she could hold that faith in yeah. in that institution that that had not had not seen many of her communities right, yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in in every possible way. Um, so I I think that I mean I I totally understand, and I think the person asking the question understands that there must be something out in order to leave us a story. Yeah. But but I would say that was one of the things that 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 troubled me afterwards that I would have loved to ask her questions about. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I think it comes down to the fact Polly, despite everything, was an optimist. Yeah. Having really, and I think Polly saw here was the Episcopal Church where Polly had been raised, where Polly's grandmother had been baptized, mm. you know, as the as a slave. Mm. Um, or maybe it's Polly's great grandmother. I have to get this correct, but in the very same church that Polly later officiated where Polly later officiated and talked about reconciliation, which is a hopeful sign. And I think Polly was frustrated by the law in some ways and what you could do with the law and thought, you know, I can have an impact one-on-one ministering to people. I mean, that's what Polly's niece said, and had a kind of personality change, became, as, as the niece said, more of a listener, less of a talker. It was a real shift. Very, it's really, really super interesting, I have yeah. to say. Um, yeah. There's another question here, which uh, which is uh, also very, you know, tricky. Um, were there any safeguarding issues, stroke permissions needed around highlighting Paulie's medical history, correspondence with her physicians in the film? We see some parts were redacted, but was there a discussion on what to include? Um, there was a discussion on what to include, but I don't think it was self-censorship on our part or feeling like, oh, there isn't, you know, we don't want to include this. It was just a question of storytelling choices. What would be the most effective? It, we weren't really holding back. And and actually, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of material about mm-hmm. this issue uh, in, in the archive. And again, as I said, we felt what Polly left behind, these letters to the to the doctors and others, um, you know, we tried to tell that in as clear a way as possible, but we weren't pulling back. And, and uh, you know, there were no editorial restrictions on us from uh, the Polly Murray Foundation, which grants permission for people to use the material at Harvard. Uh, and we had to get that permission, but it didn't come with any strings. It's it's really interesting because, of course, it's another thing that is very much in in the in the forefront of our minds is is how people relate to their own mental health and how we relate to other people's mental health. So yeah. the idea that this woman who who did so much, who achieved so much, also you know had that problem is is sort of very very inclusive to the rest of us. Um, I I have uh, I have one more and um, probably our final question, which is so. When you were doing a series about about feminism, you discover RBG. When you're doing a film about RBG, (laughs) you discover Paulie Murray. When you were making the film about Paulie Murray, did you discover your next film (laughs) or did you discover something else that you may in the future, you know, find? 
Um, you know, I think what we discovered with RBG and also Polly Murray was a hunger on the part of audiences to see these stories of women and people who have been ignored and marginalized and discounted. And um, so we have done a film about the American chef, Julia Child, who is- I love um, that film. Change, you know, changed American eating habits and very different person uh, than Polly Murray and very different, although they actually lived at about the same time. Uh, and then we've just done a film that was at South by Southwest about the American former Congresswoman uh, Gabrielle Giffords, who was shot point blank in the head 11 years ago and her journey to come back from that and to become one of America's leading uh, gun safety activists and um, also to help uh, her husband become the senator from Arizona. So again, another story of persistence and determination and a woman. Uh, so I think that's kind of what we discovered that there's so many great stories out there that just haven't been told and, and we have an opportunity to do that. Yeah, Betsy, I, I, I just have to say um, that when I, when I came across the Pauline Murray story, I, I um, looked back to see what you guys had done and I realized that I had seen RBG and I'd seen Julia and I seen, and, and, and I thought, isn't that interesting? All of these women are sort of joined at the hip sort of by, by a persistence yeah. and a refusal yeah. to tow whatever the line was. Yeah, totally. and, 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 and I think that that, that is very confirming. And I, I'm going to just finish this by, by saying my piece, which is I watched uh, uh, two of those three films uh, with my daughter. And I think that that's a fantastic thing you've done. What you've done is it's a, a relay race. You've brought them back to me. You've allowed me to give it to my daughter. And, uh, and I think that that's a hugely valuable thing. And that, that a journey as a director is not just a film, but it's a, it's a whole trajectory. And I, I really commend you and Julie for that, for choosing that particular trajectory. Well, in a way, it feels kind of like it just happened. You know, one led to the other. And then somebody mentioned your body of work of women. We're like, oh, yeah, I guess that's true. You know, it's kind of uh, it's it, it, it's where we are. And we just feel really privileged that we've been able to do it. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Biban. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.